mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hear that you've had a very cold winter, but now spring is here, we hope. And what happens in spring? Life. Branches begin to produce buds and, and leaves as new life after a cold winter. It's the Holy Spirit who is moving across the face of the earth and renewing things. That's what he does. He brings life and renewal. Now, if you are a branch in spring, you want to be a branch in the right kind of tree because there are right kind of trees and wrong kinds of trees. Children, if you're a branch in a dead tree, what's going to happen in spring? If you're connected to a tree which is dead from the roots right upwards, there's no life in it, are you going to produce any leaves or any buds or any flowers? No, you're not. If you're going to produce and be part of this whole new life thing in the spring, you need to be connected to a tree which is alive. And that is the kind of analogy which is behind our Lord's Day in question and answer 20. The Bible teaches, and we confess, that there are two types of people in this world. There are people who are only in Adam. And there are people who are not only descendants and children of Adam, but also have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are only connected to Adam are fallen sinners, dead in their sins and trespasses, children of wrath, and the wrath and judgment of God remains on them as long as they are in their unbelief. But those who are in Christ are alive. And they have all the blessings and privileges that come along with that. And the question that is before us is, what is the relationship between these two groups of people? The Catechism from Lord's Day 2 onwards has been discussing the question of man's sin and misery, has been dealing with the fact that all the descendants of Adam are dead sinners. From conception and birth onwards, we are dead sinners. So the Catechism has talked in the last Sundays, you've been through it, it's talked about our sins and misery. It's talked about how we're inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. It's talked about our depraved nature. It's talked about the fall and disobedience of our first parents when our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin, and we are unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. These are very unpleasant truths, aren't they? But they're truths. And then in Lord's Day 4, the Catechism said, well, what, what's going to happen because of this? Is God happy when we live in sin and when we love sin and when we hate him and we hate his goodwill? How is God going to deal with that? Well, the Catechism said in Lord's Day 4, God is not happy. He is displeased. He will judge with a just judgment both now and 
eternally. Because those who love sin live under God's curse. Well, then we went to Lord's Day 5. And, and Lord's Day 5 said, well, how do we get out of this? Is there an escape? Is there a solution to this problem? And the Catechism confessed what the Scripture teaches. Yes, there is a solution. Someone has to pay for sin. Somebody has to take our curse and our guilt and get rid of it in a proper legal way. And so the Catechism went through a bunch of options. Can, can we make that payment? Nope. Can some creature make it? Nope. And then the solution was, from the Scriptures, that there needs to be someone who is both God and man at the same time. And that true and perfect and righteous man and true and holy God, he can deal with the problem of our sin. He can save us. And in Lord's Day 6, we discovered what his name was and what his name is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we come to Lord's Day 7, and the questioner in the catechism is very happy because we've, we've looked at the problem, sin and misery and judgment and death. And all of a sudden, we've got a solution. Jesus. So it's all solved. Hooray. Everybody died because Adam rebelled. Now Jesus came and set everything right. And so everybody is saved. Right? Is that how it works? And the Catechism says, kind of short and abrupt here, that the first sentence is one word. No, full stop. That's not the way it works. That's not what the Bible teaches. We may well wonder, well, but, but doesn't the Bible say, and doesn't Paul say to the Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Doesn't that, doesn't that say what we think it says, that, that everybody's fine now, that Jesus has come and died and risen? But not so fast. We've got to pay close attention to those prepositions. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. How do you get to be in Adam? How do you get to be connected to Adam? Well, it's very easy. You just have to be born. Every one of us here listening to the sermon has been born. So all of us are in Adam. We're descendants. We're children of Adam. And being children of Adam, we share... In his fall, his rebellion, we share in his sin, and we share in the judgment upon that sin. But how about being in Christ? How does that work? Did the Lord Jesus have children? No, the Lord Jesus didn't get married. He didn't have children. So no one here is a physical descendant of the Lord Jesus. So how can you be in Christ? Well, the Bible tells us. The children of God, those who are in Christ, are not born of blood. They're not physical descendants. They're not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they are born of God. And that means they are born again. And that means they are born from above. Well, who? Who is born again? Who is born from above? Who is part of the new humanity that is in Christ and not in Adam anymore? Well, the Bible teaches us that too in John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave right to become children 
of God. How can you be in Adam? It's real easy. You just get born. How can you be in Christ? You need to believe. That's what connects us. That's what unites us to Christ. So here we have the analogy. We have two trees. We have a dead tree, which can't bear any fruit. And the root of that tree is Adam. That's the human race in its fallen condition. Dead, dead, dead. Nothing else. Then we have another tree. And this tree, its root, its trunk is Christ. And all those who are in him, connected to him, they have life. And they have life in abundance. And this is the miracle. God takes branches from that dead, fallen mass of humanity and he grafts them into the Lord Jesus Christ. God works miracles. God changes dead sinners into sons and daughters of the living God. And how does he do that? Well, look what the, the Catechism summarizes here from the Scripture's teaching. Those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Now, I was told that we don't have any farmers in the congregation, which is good, although we may have some gardeners, so maybe I'm on thin ice when I try to talk about grafting because I don't know a lot about it. But the basic idea is this. You have a plant and you have a branch and you make a little slit in, the, in that plant and you, and you insert in some manner the branch or the, the twig that you're grafting in. And then you bind it up so that it stays together. But that's not good enough. That's just the beginning. Because what has to happen now is that there has to be some kind of transfer of the, the life of the plant, of the tree. It has to, the, 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 the new twig or the new branch has to drink the life-giving sap of the tree. And as it does so, it will grow more and more to be part of that tree and to live from it. And that's the picture that the Catechism uses and also the Scripture for true faith. So, we learn that having faith, having true faith, makes a big difference. It's the biggest difference that you can imagine. It makes the difference between death and life, between hell and heaven. The Scripture says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if faith unites us to Christ, and if faith unites us to the one who is life itself, then we would want to know what does faith look like and where do I get it? It's the most important thing in the world. If you're in a burning building... And somebody tells you there's only one exit door. The rest are all locked. There's only one door you can escape through. You're not going to say, well, how very interesting. You're going to say, where is it? And how do I get there? And so we hear that for the fallen and dead sinner, there's only one escape, and that is to be united to Christ by true faith. So we want to know, where do we get this faith from? What does it look like? And that brings us to the question and answer 21. Well, what is true faith? It's a sure knowledge. I'm going to stop there and think about that. Faith has to do with the mind. 
with the head. Faith has content. Faith has to do with things that you know. Now, some people, when they talk about faith, they talk about it as if it's some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, some kind of intangible emotion that kind of rises up within you. Sometimes you get people from uh, different sects and they, they knock on your door and they say, well, this and this and this is how the world works. And, and, and if you feel a really warm feeling in your chest, then that's confirming that uh, what we're seeing is true. But the Bible doesn't teach that faith is a warm, fuzzy feeling. Oh, faith has a lot to do with our emotions. Yes, it produces a lot of emotion. But faith is not just emotion. When we turn to the letter of Jude, verse 3, he writes, I was going to write to you about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now think about that. The faith that was delivered. Can you, can you deliver an emotion? It's difficult to deliver, to pass on an emotion. What Jude wanted to do was pass on a body of knowledge, things that are known and things that are to be known, things that are to be believed. And if you read through the New Testament letters, you see that the apostles often say about various doctrines, they say, we know this and we know that. John, in his fifth chapter of the first epistle, verse 20, he says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So faith has to do with knowing in the first place, not with some fuzzy feeling in the first place, but not just knowing. Because sometimes you have a person that says, you know, I really believe, I have faith, I just, I just know that God is going to bless this thing that I'm doing. I've met people in my work in the past years who have said, you just, I, I just know that if I stay home and don't work, that God is going to take care of me and, and send me food and, and sustenance. I, I just know that. Okay, so there's the knowing aspect, but there's something wrong here because then their knowing is, is, is subjective. It's based on something intangible. The knowing that has to do with true faith is a knowing that is objective. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true not everything that comes into my imagination, but I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. Not in some dream, not in some vision, not in some kind of inspiration, but in his word. That's what faith has to do with. All that God has revealed in his word. Not, not some of what God has revealed. All of it. And just for a moment, let's jump ahead to question answer 22. Because that deals with the content of faith. They said, what then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel. All. Not some, not most, all. Which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. Now, that, that's not easy. To believe in all the promises of God, that is not easy. Because we don't always see 
we don't always perceive, we don't always, we can't always figure out how that can possibly be true, what God is saying. And there's a reason for that. And you know the reason, because you know Hebrews 11, the first few verses. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And sometimes that's really tough, right? To have faith. God's word promises us that it is true. When the word of God tells us who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God still will do, we don't always have a lot of data to kind of back that up and check that out. Some of it we can see, some of it we can't. We just need to embrace it by faith. And what we have in the creed is a beautiful summary. We talked about summary this morning, John 3, verse 16, summary of the scriptures. And perhaps the Apostles' Creed, even though it's not inspired, is the second most succinct summary of the entire gospel and the word of God. I like to think of the creed as, as not just 12 sentences, which we, we have to kind of believe each word of those sentences, but the creed is kind of like a map to the word of God. And it, it kind of maps out and shows 12 huge mountain ranges which go throughout the world. And each of those mountain ranges, which we see the peak of here, the, the top of in these articles, has all kinds of other teaching and doctrine built right into it and, and coming and proceeding from it. And the Catechism is going to take Lord's Days 8 right through to Lord's Days 22 to deal with each of these articles of the Creed one by one. But I just want to go for very quickly to some points about Article 1. I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. And what does it mean to have true faith? To accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. Does it mean to say that you should be able to affirm, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and beyond that you can believe what you want about creation, about evolution, about all kinds of other related things. Well, that's not true. What does Hebrews 11 say? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are, in, that are visible. I just want to mention very quickly three aspects to this. For many years, scientists and thinkers considered the universe to be eternal, that it had no beginning. It's just in the last century or so that scientists, because they discovered what they called the Big Bang, they decided, well, the, the universe did have a beginning. But for many centuries, they said, no, it's just always been here. And during all of those centuries when they thought it was eternal, what was the church saying? The church was saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The universe has a beginning. I don't care what the philosophers say. I don't care what the great thinkers say. This is what God says. And it's true. Well, another example might be creation and evolution. You go to university, and your professor, your biology professor, is mocking, sneering at those stupid fundamentalists that actually believe that the world was created by some god in six days, which makes the joke even funnier for him. 
What are you supposed to think about that? And then he lists study after study and scientist after scientist and authority after authority to show that man's best, most intelligent evaluation is that the world has evolved over billions and billions of years. And that life has evolved over millions and millions of years. What is a Christian to do? A Christian is to say, that's interesting, and I'd love to read this stuff, but this is my starting point. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and packed into that is everything he said about it. From Genesis 1 on, every detail that he gives to me, I accept, even though sometimes I really don't know how to make it fit with what science is seeing currently. When there's a clash of authorities, I will recognize that, but I will put God and his word first. And then a third example. Don't don't forget, we're talking about what it is to, to live and to exercise a true faith. It is to accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. So packed into this first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is also the Christian's response to the current confusion about marriage, what marriage is, who marriages be between, sexuality, and gender. The world and the government can get very confused about these things. And they can make up a lot of very interesting ideas about how things should work. And sometimes it's tough for us to operate in a society that does this. But the Christian's starting point is a starting point of faith. What does God say? And right there in Genesis, we have the historical account of God creating the institution of marriage, male and female, distinct genders and sexes. You see that to have true faith is not just some kind of abstract theological thing, but it makes a big difference in our day-to-day life, in our studies and in our work and in how we interact with our communities and with society around us. And the believer always starts with God. Science may appear to say otherwise. Government and society may try to force me to believe differently, but I will live my life based only on the Word of God. Sometimes I can't explain it. Sometimes I don't even understand exactly how it works. But God says it, and so I know it, and I know it to be true. And this approach, brothers and sisters, is an all-or-nothing approach. You can't just do this with some things and not with other things. You see, sometimes some believers, they say, you know what, there's so much pressure uh, in, in the academy, and, and there's so much pressure by, by scientists, and we have to try to squish and turn and cram the Bible's teaching into something that is vaguely palatable to the unbeliever. So we don't look so stupid. You don't want to be a Christian university professor and have your colleagues mock you, do you? So sometimes we're tempted to go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and say, well, let's read this in another way. Or sometimes we go from Genesis 1 to chapter 11. We say, well, let's read all of these chapters in another way. Did God really say? And so we start quoting and echoing the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said this? 
Do these words actually say what they say? Do they actually mean what they mean? Can't we put another spin on them so that we can kind of be more attractive and more acceptable to the world? It's a very big temptation, brothers and sisters. But here's the deal. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all. Did you catch the word all? All that God has revealed to us in his word. When God tells us how he made the world in six days, that tells us something about who he is, about his power and his might. Do you know anybody that can make a universe like ours in six days? Only God. And if we change that, so that Genesis is actually saying, well, actually the world just kind of sprung to being. And it's just been changing over billions and billions and billions of years. And we'll always add more time if we need it. That changes the very character of God. It's blasphemy. The creator of the Bible is no longer the creator. See, once you give way on one point, you end up giving way on all of them. Have you ever seen those things on TV where they set up all the dominoes in a huge gymnasium? They spend hours and hours doing it, and they flick one. Once it's started, it doesn't stop, does it? They all go down eventually. And it's the same with the Scriptures. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And God wants us to receive all of them as God's truth. Now imagine we're on the edge of a cliff. And that cliff is 1,189 meters high. And let's say that we look at each other and say, this cliff is too high. I'm just going to step off for two meters or three, just for three meters. Or I'm going to step off this cliff just for 11 meters. Can you do that? No, because once you start falling, you're not going to stop till you hit the bottom, are you? And when you hit the bottom, 1,189 meters later... It's not going to look good. Faith has content. And that content is God's word, God's revelation. And faith also involves not just accepting that it, it's a fact, or that it's, that it, that it's a, a statement or an affirmation, but it involves affirming that it's true. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true. So let's think about the three stages here, which we see in Lord's Day 7, uh, question answer 21, there are kind of three stages to the, the, the knowledge that goes with faith. And we can imagine it as a, a stool with three legs. Have you ever tried to sit on a stool which only has two legs? That's difficult. Three is better, isn't it? If a stool has two legs, you, you let go, it's going to fall over. You want three legs, and it's going to stand. So these are the three legs of the stool. Number one, we need to know all that God has revealed. Just basic knowledge. If God reveals things, if God says things, if God has his, given us his word, we need to know that word. That's, that's the first step. But is that enough? No, it's not enough. Because you can have some unbelieving professor at some university that studies the word of God as literature. And he may know the Bible better than you do. Because he maybe reads it a lot. But for him, it's just a very interesting myth. It's just a story. He knows all the details. He can quote texts. He knows all the different characters and all the different stories. He's got knowledge. Well, that's not faith because he doesn't believe it's true. Well, let's add another, another leg to the stool, shall we? 
We don't only know what God reveals, but we know it to be true. We're getting there, aren't we? If we know the scriptures and we say, yes, God says this, and I know that what he says is true. Is that true faith? We might be inclined to say, well, yeah, that's pretty good. That's, we can take that. You know what God says, you, and you know it's true. Well, the Bible says, no, that's not true faith. You know what James says? He says, you know, even the demons believe, but they tremble. And we talked about that this morning, didn't we? We mentioned that this morning. The demons know God's word. They know it to be true, but it doesn't change their life. It doesn't transform who they are. It doesn't unite them with God. So there's one more leg on the stool that we need. And that is in the second part of this question answer 21. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me. God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. That's the third part of a true saving knowledge. is that I know that it's true for me. That I have an experiential knowledge. I know that Jesus died. I know that it's true that Jesus died. And I know that it's true that he died for me. I know that the Bible says that sins are forgiven. I know that it's true that sins are forgiven. And I know that it's true that my sins are forgiven. That I am righteous in Christ. That I am saved by mere grace, by Christ's merits. This is real. This is me, for me. This is something that I have. And that firm confidence that we can have is based on union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based on a real and living relationship. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now think of a woman who's very poor, and she's terribly in debt. She owes millions of dollars, and she's very poor. And suddenly, a bridegroom comes along and says, I want to marry you. And in order to marry you, I'm going to pay all your debts, and when we're married, all of my wealth will be your wealth. She's going to be one happy lady, isn't she? And that's a picture of the bride of Christ. Guilty from our sins, with a debt that we can never pay, our bridegroom comes and says, I pay it all with my precious blood. But not just that. I marry you. I love you with an eternal love. And I will never leave you or forsake you. And not just that. All of the wealth, all of my glory, all of my perfect obedience and innocence and purity. You share in that. It's all yours. And he seals it to us with the ring of baptism and with the sweet embrace of the bridegroom that we experience when we sit down at the Holy Supper. Well, that's what we have as Church of God. We have a true faith which unites us to Christ and gets us to experience all of his benefits. But where do we get this faith from? We've talked about what this faith looks like and what it is and what it does, but where do we get it from? Well, at the end of question answer 21, we confess what the Bible teaches us on that point. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Do you want faith? Remember, faith is the difference between being connected to a dead, judged humanity 
or a living Savior? Of course we want faith. Do we want faith for us and for our children? Of course we do. Well, if we want faith, if we want to be united to Christ by true faith, then let's love the gospel because the Holy Spirit works faith by the gospel. And if that's how he works faith, then we want, to, we want to search out the gospel. We want to have a hunger for the gospel. We want to be where the gospel is. We want our lives to be drenched in the gospel. From the beginning to the end of our life, we want to have contact and be in, under, the, under the influence of the gospel. And isn't that beautiful that after just a few days on this earth, our little children can be brought into, into the worship service and can receive the sign and seal of the covenant that gospel promises sealed right onto their foreheads. And isn't it awesome that every day, every one of us who is baptized, we, we live and we work and we study and we play and we do all kinds of things. And we always carry with us that mark that says, I love you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am your God. I am your creator. I am your redeemer. I am your restorer, your life giver, your, the one who transforms you. And so we always live, literally, under the influence of the gospel. It's stamped right on our foreheads. But let our homes also be homes that are full of gospel influence. Parents. Let your children see the gospel in the way in which you work and live and speak and entertain yourself. Husbands, let your children see the gospel in the way you treat and love your wife. And wives, let your children see the gospel in the way that you love and respect your husband. Let our words as mothers and fathers always be words of grace and words that are life-giving and gospel-affirming. May the gospel be read in our families and studied and discussed and meditated on and not just read real quick before we zoom off to hockey practice. Because kids can figure out what the priorities are, you know. Oh, we don't have time. We've got to go to Costco. We'll read tomorrow. You're telling your kids a lot when you make decisions like that. How important is the gospel in your family, in your life? And then, if we love the gospel, because we need the gospel, because we want true faith to be worked and strengthened, then we need to love the assembly of God's people, because that is the most powerful moment when God meets with his people every week, and we can hear the very voice of God in the preaching. We are in the workshop of the, workshop of the Holy Spirit. And when God speaks, things happen. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 1? God said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, boom, there was light all through the universe. When God speaks, things happen. And so when God speaks in the preaching and in the worship service, through the reading and the, the preaching of the gospel, then dead sinners are transformed into those who are alive in Christ. We can think of Ezekiel and that valley of dry bones. How did God get that dry bone body, those, those, those dry bones to, to have life? He told Ezekiel, preach to them. Preach to them. Here in the worship service, as counterintuitive as it is, because you would think that there would be way better ways of transmitting the gospel and working faith. But this is the way that God has chosen, the foolishness of preaching. And in this way, God is creating light in the darkness. He is creating life out of death. 
and he is declaring it and sealing it to us in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's saying, I love you, I forgive you, I restore you, I embrace you. That works and that strengthens faith. And if that's happening here, then this is the place to be. Because I want faith. I want faith to connect me to Jesus because he is life. He is the only name under heaven by which a man can be saved. He is the name above all other names. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want that faith, that true and living faith, which unites me to him in such a way that I am inseparable and that nothing, nothing can ever separate me from him. The world can mock me and unbelieving scientists can sneer at me and governments can hound me for my beliefs, and the false church can try to seduce me to say, well, let's give up this and give up that. But I will stand firm in my faith, says the Christian. I'm not going to stand in my own power, but I will stand in the power of the Spirit of the Son of God, and by that true faith, I will be able to sacrifice everything I have, and even sacrifice those whom I love, if necessary, in order to follow Christ. By that faith, I will be able to choose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. By that faith, I can regard disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater than all the treasures of the world. By that faith, I can conquer kingdoms. I can administer justice. I can gain what is promised. I can shut the mouth of lions. I can quench the fury of the flames. I can escape the edge of the sword. By that faith, My weakness is turned to strength because by that faith, I am no longer dead in my sins and trespasses, but I am united to Jesus Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Amen.
This afternoon we confess our holy, undoubted Catholic and apostolic faith with the words of the Nicene Creed, page 